Hello, and welcome to Top Class, the OECD's education podcast. My name is Henry, and I work in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. And we're still in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, so today is another remote podcast recording. Each speaker is connecting from wherever they are in the world. And today, we're talking about school-to-work transitions. That is, how do young people leaving school now get into the job market, get into the world of work? Specifically, how are they going to do that in the midst of this crisis with so many sectors and industries struggling? What will the role of schools be? What will the role of parents be? What will the role of vocational education and training, or VET, be? To talk about this today, I'm joined by Professor Ingrid Schoon, who is Professor of Human Development and Social Policy at the Institute of Education, University College London, and Anthony Mann, Senior Policy Analyst here at the OECD. Anthony, Ingrid, thank you for joining. It's great to join you. Likewise. (laughs) So we're talking about the transition from school to work, but in the current crisis, in the coronavirus crisis. Uh, Ingrid, uh, first question, I want to come to you. So we can kind of understand the real context. What was the job market like for young people before the crisis? And then what's it like now? How has the virus changed things? Well, uh, the job market for young people was already strained before the corona crisis struck. For example, in some European countries, such as Spain and Greece, youth unemployment rates were above 30% and even higher during the 28 recession. Young people are commonly experiencing higher unemployment rates than adults and up to three times higher than adults, actually. Yet unemployment rates do not include those who are identified as economically inactive, i.e. those who are not in education, employment or training, uh, described by the term need. And um, also the average need is quite stable over time. Uh, It also affects countries differently. So generally, it is about uh, one in six people who are affected by need, but uh, countries in Southern Europe, such as Spain or Italy, generally have higher levels. And um, more generally, even before the the pandemic struck, young people faced a labor market characterized by temporary and precarious employment. There had been a growing rate of employees with fixed-term temporary and zero-hour contracts uh, working in the gig economy. And um, there has been a shift towards this more precarious and flexible employment arrangements and low-pay even among graduates. And many young people continue to struggle to find quality jobs. And that, of course, hasn't uh, improved with the crisis. And and it can be expected that the prospects for young people become more difficult. In the crisis, what happened in particular is that suddenly there was a lockdown and um, well, a number of companies closed down. And um, so, so young people disproportionately lost their jobs in the labor market, including also apprentices who suddenly found they, they, have, they are no longer in employment and they can no longer realize their dreams of getting a skilled occupation. How does this school-to-work transition differ by things like job sector, gender, socioeconomic background? And do you think the COVID-19 crisis has affected certain groups or sectors more severely than others? Well, I think 
well, the job market is characterized by uh, because of the crisis. Many employers, um, because of falling demand, were pausing recruitment. And that, of course, has severe consequences for all young people who are about to complete their studies. There might actually be something like a whole COVID cohort of young people unable to find work and um, increasing competition for scarce opportunities. And generally, it is the case that, for example, occupations in the health service and uh, caring industry, there is still high demand and then people uh, could continue in these occupations. But then there are um, other occupations, particularly in, in, um, in construction industries and um, the jobs in hospitality, in particularly leisure and travel, all these jobs uh, have taken, well, they're forced to close down. There is no more employment. And these are often the jobs that young people take on. And there is also the phenomenon that um, all education leavers at all levels, they actually might have to trade down to lower skilled occupations and uh, and again, these are again the occupations that are most likely be struck due to the depressed uh, job situation, and uh, so there will be a very large demand for these uh, relatively low skilled jobs that now people compete for with even higher qualification than are necessary for the job, and. I think it is like a, a bonfire of, of a disadvantage that will uh, really challenge the future of a whole generation who are now about to enter the labor market. And it also shows that the first rung of the employment ladder looks to be broken because, um, well, there are fewer opportunities to enter it and also then fewer uh, people who actually succeed to get even into this low skilled and um, less prestigious jobs. Obviously, the, the obvious joblessness for young people, that's a problem, people not in work. I, I see that. But on top of that, for young people in particular, do you see a kind of ripple effect that will affect other aspects of their lives or have other effects in other sectors? What do you think? Well, I, uh, well definitely the school... Um, to work transition is um, a very crucial um, phase in the lives of young people. It can be a make or break period, which has impact on a range of later outcomes, including not only employment opportunities, but also patterns of family formation and health and well-being. A problematic entry into the labor market is not only a temporary experience, but may bring longer term consequences regarding uh, so-called also sometimes as scarring effects, particularly regarding employment opportunities. It can also be a signaling effect to employers that these young people were not able to enter the labor market immediately. So it could be a, a signal of problems. But uh, it is also, there are so many other ongoing aspects that have to be considered because the school-to-work transition is interlinked, for example, with housing. If young people lose their jobs or they get lower pay, they will no longer be able to afford their rent. They might have to um, move back to their parents 
if they're lucky, or they might have to move to other, maybe less safe and less appropriate uh, accommodation. And so I think there are all these um, follow-on consequences, including also if you are not in work or only in unstable work, you might also be less attractive on the marriage market. So it might be more difficult to attract a partner or you have to defer the decision to start a family. And all these factors and interlinked transition can undermine the health and well-being of young people, increasing their feelings of loneliness and social exclusion, and then have long-term serious health effects, which again creates a new cost to society. I'm going to bring the conversation over to Anthony now. So Ingrid's outlined a lot of problems that, that are being faced in this crisis by young people. And it's not just joblessness, it's a whole host of other issues that might affect their well-being and their lives. What can we do about it, in, especially in this crisis? Well, there's an interesting place to start here is, 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 is a recent um, IZA paper by the Italian economist Francesco Pastori. And he was looking at why youth unemployment is um, so high and different across countries. And a point which he made, which I think is very helpful to us, is that if you look across the world, you see young people becoming ever more educated. Uh, but we still see them struggling in the labor market. And that's because, as he put it, we, we, see, we see them as having a lower level of human capital than adults. Because even though they have academic qualifications, they lack work-related competencies. And essentially, if we're looking at this question about how we can support young people to, to, to find work, find good work you know, during this crisis, what we, what we see is that young people do better in the jobs market if they have better understanding of the world of work and they have experience of it. And that becomes a, por- a prominent part of their secondary education. And we see this playing out in two ways. Firstly, in programs of vocational education and training that uh, students often follow up a secondary level between the ages of about 15 and 18 but also in programs of career guidance and career exploration, which are relevant to all learners. And in both of these areas, effective systems will help young people to think, to think critically about the labour market and the role which they see themselves playing in it. It will allow them to explore the labour market, um, to ask questions and do research, you know, and get, allow them the opportunity to experience the labour market. And in all of this, in a, um, it's the authenticity of those engagements which, which relate to the quality. And if we look at VET, for example, um, effective VET systems are built around work-based learning. You know, going into a workplace, having that workplace as a site of learning, having choosed with first-hand experience. And, you know, the VET offer, in you know, the vocational education training offer to a young person is simple. You follow a programme of learning linked to a specific occupational area, and you can expect a skilled job there. Um, you know, to follow. What we see is that in effective systems, young people, um, what they learn, it reflects, you know, real demand in the labour market. If we have systems which are very well balanced between what employers want and what um, the education and training systems are delivering, we can find that young people are building skills which are of genuine demand to employers without over-specialising. And in doing that, you know, what they're saying is they're reducing the risk to employers. They're saying they're developing networks um, of, 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 of recruiters, of employers. They're showing that they can understand the culture of different works. And, you know, they're getting letters of recommendation and they're getting experience, which shows that there are less of a risk to employers who've got, that, you know, the best possible, the wise possible choice in a flooded job market. Just to bring it briefly back uh, to the crisis, I read a blog article by the two of you, actually, by Anthony and Ingrid, on on the parallels that we can draw between this crisis with coronavirus and the 2008 crash. Could you explain a bit more about that? Well, absolutely. And it's a really interesting parallel. And, you know, it's only sort of 12 years ago we had the the great financial crisis. And 
you know, we see in some countries that, uh, you know, youth unemployment more than doubling. It's, you know, a catastrophic episode of, of youth unemployment. And if you look across the OECD countries, in pretty much every country between 2007 and 2013, if you, if you dig out the comparative statistics, we see really significant increases in youth joblessness, except except in a small number of countries which had low levels of youth unemployment in 2007 and still low levels, very low levels in 2013. And in Europe, these are countries, um, Austria, Germany and Switzerland. And what's distinctive about them is they all have excellent vet systems which are built around work-based learning, around apprenticeships. And these, these, these are mass participation activities. More than half young people in upper secondary education follow these vet, vet programmes in, the, in, in these countries. Um, and, you know, it's not just a matter of having a vet program, you know, it needs to be good. And this is that point about balance I was making earlier, where the structure of, of a program is such that um, it's, a, it's generally attractive to a learner, thinking that they're going to, you know, knowing, being confident they're going to develop, you know, the knowledge and skills to lead to sustained skilled employment and to an employer that, you know, that the benefits and costs will be properly weighed through their investment in the apprenticeship program. Um, you know, we, we see programs which really work for the benefit of, of both parties. And in those countries, it's based around social partnerships, where you see um, programs designed with employers and trade unions and educationalists. We find the interest balancing out. And in those areas, we, we find that, you know, young people were, were a better place to withstand, you know, the, um, the big downturn in demand for, um, for labour, which um, all countries experienced during that crisis. Bringing Ingrid back in here, actually. Ingrid, how can schools and parents teach students about jobs? Do, do you have recommendations for students by different age groups? I, and here I'm thinking in general, actually, not just about the crisis. Well, I think generally um, the career guidance is very important that young people get uh, information about occupations, as Anthony said, and uh, to get a, a better understanding of what the workplace look logs. So um, they need information about different job opportunities, in particular also knowledge about the local labor market. And I think another important role of parents and teachers is to provide uh, like uh, maybe offering them opportunities for not only being uh, already touching the labor market or having some experience of real life work by taking on, for example, weekend jobs or part-time jobs while studying. It also means to um, be, be able to have maybe have a mentor and role models and this can refer to the social capital that Anthony has mentioned, but uh, it can also mean, for example, as a social capital, i.e. that uh, the family or the teachers bring the young people into contact with certain employers or provide them opportunities for internships and so on, that they uh, can get a first foothold in the labor market. But it could also be, be for schools to invite, for example, um, certain role models or representatives of different occupations and to to give them a feeling of what it is working like in particular occupations and i think 
a very motivating factor that many young people are also not, that is often on the mind of young people. It is the, the payment they get uh, uh, for a job. So I think um, there should also be information what certain jobs pay in the end, because the young people often have unrealistic expectations of what will be their first salary when they complete the education or training. And that goes through the whole sector for um, people leaving school just with uh, normal college qualifications, but also so, uh, those who leave with graduate qualifications. And so I think it needs to be a compact package of what is provided, information about jobs, pay structures, and also the local opportunities in joining the labor market. And Anthony, what do you think about this early career guidance? Oh, it's absolutely essential. I think we're, we're understanding it better and better. And Ingrid herself has done some fabulous work in here, um, looking at you know, uh, the attitudes and the experiences of young people while they're still in school and how they relate to better than expected outcomes later on in life. And this whole area of, of career readiness is quite difficult if we're going to sort of be scientific about it, because you know, we kind of know that young people are so different. They have, um, we know things like social background and academic attainment uh, are very important in determining how well they do in the labor market. We know that if you're in an economy where there are just no jobs, it's really hard to, to get ahead. So where you live is important. You know, if you're from a migrant background, you've got different connections, social capital, that's important. But by using longitudinal data sets, you know, where you follow, follow people from birth, I mean, big numbers all the way through into their adulthood, we're able to compare like with like, you know, young people from similar backgrounds, um, with similar levels of attainment and similar areas. And we can see, you know, the relationship between um, in interventions and attitudes and experiences that happen to them at school and what happens to them later on in the labor market. And these, you know, sort of cluster, I think, into three sort of like key areas. Firstly, there is a range of attitudinal areas, which is about thinking about the future. And so if, if a young person at 15 is un unable to name a job they expect to do at age 30, so we call them um, uncertain, and you know, uncertainty is growing. We know through the OECD PISA study that um, in the year 2000, about 15% of young people were uncertain. Now it's about a quarter. Um, on general, if at 15 they, they underestimate the level of education they need in order to be able to achieve their career ambition, they do worse later on. And we find that you know, young people with higher ambitions do, do better than we'd expect. And there are, there are just some things about what you actually think about the labor market is important. And then we know that you know, the exploration is really important as well. Um, we can look at longitudinal data sets and simple things that if you've discussed your aspirations at the age of 14, 15, 16, you tend to do better later on. If you take part in some of these career development activities, like the career talks within schools, we can see um, boosts in terms of employment and, and pay. And it's gained with experience, particularly doing a part-time job alongside your full-time education. You know, longitudinal studies consistently tell us that you do better later on. And, uh, you know, some recent research has also shown that volunteering as a teenager. And all this is about um, enabling young people to um, to engage in their future world, to engage in the work in the working world, and to develop and, and gain experience. We kind of know that this is really important because what PISA also tells us is that you know the labour market is really bad at signalling to young people, you know, kind of where the opportunities are. In the 2018 round of, of PISA, 
across the OECD, an average 50% of young people, you ask them the job they expect to do at 30, well, 50% of them name just one of 10 jobs. In some countries, it's more than 70% name just one of 10 jobs. In other countries, in one country, it's more than 80%. It's, um, you know, and this, this tells us that young people have a very narrow view of the labour market. We know that about one-fifth of them underestimate the education which they require to be able to achieve the, the jobs that they anticipate um, entering. Um, we kind of know as well that, you know, that many, many young people who are very high achievers in terms of what the PISA tests in, in reading and in mathematics and science tells us, they're high achievers there, but their aspirations are, are, are very low. And we know that social class, we know that um, your background, your gender can have a distorting effect on um, your understanding of the labour market. So career guidance particularly when it's enriched by first-hand authentic encounter with the labour market, can play a really very important role in helping young people to prepare as best as possible as they make more and more decisions as they stay in education for longer and longer. And in this crisis, they will try and stay in education as long as they possibly can. But to, um, to develop a profile of skills and qualifications and knowledge which will allow them to enter the labour market with greater confidence than would be the case otherwise. Maybe if I could add something, because I think that is a, a general advice uh, about this career guidance, very important advice to have it in place. But I think the pandemic might have, uh, and also young people witnessing not only their own uh, precarious employment, but also that of their peers and their parents, who also might have lost uh, work and relatives. It might create uh, feelings of despair, hopelessness, and fatalist assumptions that actually it isn't worth bothering about finding a job because there are no jobs out there there. And I think that adds a new dimension to the challenges of uh, schools and parents to maintain and uh, and engage young people in this process of finding jobs and uh, maybe have an early warning or tracking system of young people who are particularly at risk of losing interest and maybe falling off the rails. And if you and if these programs are offered, they should not, ju not just be generic, but they should also try to respond uh, to the motivations of the young people or find a way to engage them and interest them so that we are not at risk of losing a large chunk of young people who actually become uh, hopeless and who despair about uh, ever being entering the job market. That is on the one hand, but on the other hand, there is the saying there is nothing, one should not waste a, a good crisis. And it could mean that many young people discover, for example, new ways of uh, finding employment because every crisis has seen the emergence of new occupations. So I think another important issue is that there should be a foreclosure to these new opportunities that are arising and also encouragement to explore but new job opportunities for the young people. Anthony, do you agree with what Ingrid said about that there is actually opportunities in this crisis for young people in the job market? Um, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think we have to tread with care. I think Ingrid is absolutely right in thinking in, in raising the risks of um, people's very negative and unhappy first immediate experience of being in an area where, where youth unemployment is very high, where general unemployment is very high, where it becomes quite difficult perhaps to see the relationship between you know working hard in school 
and um, economic prospects later on. I think in those circumstances, it becomes more important than ever to make sure that the insights that we give to how the labor market is operating, continues to operate, are as authentic as possible because that's, you know, there will be a, a growing, understandable growing cynicism. And if we think about, you know, um, kind of the opportunities, well, you know, we, I think these fall in sort of like in, in two areas. And um, one is that I think what we're arguing, and many other people argue as well, is that schools can do, you know, so much more to help young people to compete for the available jobs that, that are there. They can help them do um, enhance their prospects, do better than we would expect, you know, so given, you know, the qualifications they have, the background that they have. And PISA 2018 tells us that um, at the age of 15, on average, only 50% of young people have had a discussion with a, with a careers guidance counsellor um, in school. You know, fewer than 50% have been to a jobs fair. Fewer than 50% have been on a workplace visit or done job shadowing. Only around a third have done an internship. And I think this is a wake-up call for us around the world to really think afresh about, you know, the sort of interventions that can be put in place, which are, which are really quite modest. And then related to that, you know, this is an opportunity for us to broaden the thinking of young people. Uh, we've seen a lot of focus over, you know, the last six months over what is an essential occupation. You know, we're, we're, um, we're, you know, young people, you know, aren't only driven by how much money they can earn, but they have a very narrow view. You know, they have a very narrow focus on often the traditional professions. And, you know, when people think about employment, what's important is for them to try and understand and imagine a place in the labor market, which fits with their wider sense of values, their wider responsibilities, their wider feeling of, of happiness and be able to find a place which fits and works for them. And I think broadening um, young people's understanding about the essential things that people do and, you know, within this, I think societies generally will be reflecting about how those central professions are rewarded. But thinking about that these are, these are positions of real value and dignity. And so, um, you know, within this, within this crisis, there is a, an opportunity to think fresh about high quality vocational education and training, but also what all schools can do to better prepare young people to, to think about, to explore, to experience the labour market before it's, before it's for real. I absolutely agree with Anthony that increasing capabilities and reducing barriers are crucial in guiding young people uh, towards the employment market. But I think it is also important that there is uh, that there are opportunities for second chances because yes. young people or those who are currently in education might have missed out in completing the relevant education that they were aiming for or they couldn't enter the courses they wanted to because of cuts and closures associated with the uh, crisis. So it is vitally important to maintain opportunities of second chances and to uh, enable young people to well, to upskill and to train, continue to train, and that it is important to maintain this notion of lifelong learning and to increase motivation for lifelong learning, that you do not only learn to get a qualification or a degree, but you have to learn your whole life to improve your employability skills or your capabilities to address new challenges in the labor market and society at large. Well, I think that's just about all we have time for, but I want to thank Ingrid and Anthony for joining me today. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the OECD's work on education, you can visit our website, which is 
oecd.org forward slash education and our Twitter page, which is at OECD Edu Skills, where you will find updates on all our recent reports and all our recent work on coronavirus and education. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.